Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. This episode was made possible by our top-tier patrons, Philip Dixon and Anushka Maiden, as well as all of our other patrons. If you want to support us on Patreon, go to Demystified by Ashley Styles, or even just follow us on Twitter at Demystified underscore pod. It really helps the show. Now, back to the regularly scheduled programming. 1967, Northern California. Roger Patterson and Robert Gimlin have come to the Six Rivers National Forest to make a movie. What kind of movie? Well, they're not really sure. The plot is pseudo-historical, or so they maintain. The basic gist is that it's a western docudrama, wherein some cowboys are led by an old miner and a wise American Indian to find a monster that lives up in the forests of Northern California. Apparently, this legend has pervaded the region for centuries. Sightings had supposedly happened all throughout the history of California, and whilst they're setting out to make a fictional film, they also don't doubt that they might see the real deal while they're out in the forest. They're shooting on location, after all. The forests of California are enormous. Redwood trees, thousands of years old, stretching hundreds of feet tall. Between high mountains, low ravines, roaring rivers and soaring vistas, this part of the world is untamed beauty at its finest. The two men trek down to a creek to get some footage for their film. They stop by what they call a log jam, an upturned tree, and at once, both spot the figure on the other side of the river. The figure is tall, six to seven and a half feet, neither is sure exactly how big, and covered head to toe in shaggy, matted fur. The horses spook when they catch wind of it, and it turns to run from them. Patterson gives chase, and calls for Gimlin to cover him with his rifle. But what happens next will define an era of amateur film. He catches the creature, lumbering away, and turning back to look at them before moving off to the tree line. There's a few seconds of grainy footage as it ends up coming out, but it'll shape popular culture forever. Patterson and Gimlin attempted to track the creature, but they failed. They took plaster casts of its footprints, however, as evidence of their encounter. If you can't tell what event this is yet and what this episode's going to be about, let's rewind a few decades and take a trip to the other side of the world. 1925, the Himalayas. 
N.A. Tombatsi is a Greek photographer working with the Royal Geographical Society on one of their geological expeditions to Tibet. At this time, Tibet is its own country, with a government based around the Dalai Lama and the monastic order. Tombatsi was walking near the Zimu Glacier, some 15,000 feet above sea level. What a glorious view it must have been. Up there where the air is clear, if you don't count the cloud cover, the blizzards threatening to bury you under a blanket of snow and ice, still, on the throat of the world, nature is at its wildest. I'll let him tell what it was that he saw that day, moving amongst the snowdrifts glinting in the sun. Quote, Unquestionably, the figure in outline was exactly like a human being, walking upright and stopping occasionally to uproot or pull at some dwarf rhododendron bushes. It showed up dark against the snow, and as far as I could make out, it wore no clothes. End quote. But we go on, as he describes what he saw later when he gathered his fellows and went exploring. Quote, Similar in shape to those of a man, but only six to seven inches long by four inches wide, the prints were undoubtedly those of a biped. End quote. Now, Tombatsi believed that what he saw was a mountain hermit, strangely proportioned, but still a man and nothing more. But I'm sure you must have hazarded a guess by now at what many others thought it was. Throughout the 30s, 40s, and 50s, many others went searching for it. Edmund Hillary and Tenzig Norgay both saw large footprints in the snow on their famous Everest summit, although neither believed in the legend. Still, research posits that the creature shows up in Himalayan folklore as far back as the establishment of the Burn religion, a native Tibetan religion somewhat related to Buddhism but considered separate, anywhere between the 8th and 11th centuries AD. So what do the stories of these lumbering bipedal creatures tell us? Perhaps there is a missing link out there, some hybrid of man and ape that stalks jungle canopies. Or perhaps it's all a load of nonsense, mythology mixed with urban legend to create something to sell t-shirts. Today on Demystified we look into the fact, and the fiction, behind the Sasquatch, Bigfoot, and the Yeti. So, to start off, we need to clarify some things. The Sasquatch basically is Bigfoot, but neither are necessarily the Yeti. But we're doing all three today because if we did just one, this episode would be far shorter than it should be. We'll be tackling all three in basically separate segments, or two, given that the Sasquatch and Bigfoot are kind of part of parcel. Both belong to a family of creatures called cryptids, so-called because their existences have not been proven. So, going into this, I'm predisposed to not believe that they're real, necessarily. If something is a cryptid, it's not definitively real. If it had been proven real, it wouldn't be a cryptid. So the object of this exercise isn't necessarily going to be, is Bigfoot or the Yeti real? Because the answer, necessarily, is no. It's more along the lines of, why do people believe in them and could they exist? Now, we've got two others that also circulate, but we won't be addressing them today for the opposite reason. Not enough time in an episode. That's the Yawi of Australian Aboriginal mythology and the Orang Pendek of Malaysian folklore. Both are bipedal, hairy man-apes, but whilst the Yawi is big like the Yeti or Sasquatch, the Orang Pendek is smaller, around 5 feet tall. I'd love to go into detail on these, especially Aboriginal mythology in general, but we'd be here all day, so I'll save that for another day. First off, the Sasquatch. What is it, where does it come from, and what makes it special? 
So basically Bigfoot, or the Sasquatch, is a large bipedal man-ape creature that people have seen walking around the forests of the Pacific Northwest of the United States, anywhere from Northern California up to British Columbia and Canada. It's anywhere from 6 to 9 feet tall, covered in fur ranging from red to brown to silver to black. Its footprints, often used as evidence of its existence, can go as large as 24 inches long and 8 inches across. Pretty big. Robert Pyle, an American ecologist and writer, has suggested that pretty much every culture in the world has some form of large man type of creature, be it a giant, be it the yeti, be it the yowie, the orang pendek, or Bigfoot. The origins of the American Bigfoot are quite obscure. The first mentions come from around the 1800s, the 1840s seeming to be a starting point where tribes of cannibalistic hairy men were supposedly related by Native Americans to the frontier settlers. However, by some accounts, the giant hairy men were instead not cannibals. They ate salmon or shellfish, mostly kept to themselves, so a mixed bag methodologically speaking. In the 1920s, an account was published by J.W. Burns in Canadian newspapers supposedly relating how many tribes, such as the St. Siles of British Columbia, believed in the Sasquatch and were offended by suggestions that the creature was pure mythology. It was in this and the 1940s republishing that we get the term Sasquatch, borrowed supposedly from the Hakomalem language. Apparently the reason it wasn't reported much was that it preferred to avoid white men where possible, so there you go. So we have a somewhat consistent mythology of a large, hairy, bipedal, man-like creature that lives in the Pacific Northwest, first being codified by various sources in the 1840s. But Bigfoot has been sighted across the US and Canada. A third of sightings occur in the Pacific Northwest, but despite him not being a mythological figure in much of other Native American mythology, he's still seen elsewhere, two-thirds of the sightings, if that statistic is to be trusted. The reason as to why this is we'll get into in a bit. Now, Sasquatch sightings have been fairly consistently categorised, around 1,000 between 1818 and 1980. This peaked in the 1970s after the releasing of the footage we described in our opening vignette, the Patterson-Gimlin film. That's that famous film where Bigfoot does his big, wide-arm-swinging, look-back-walkie type of thing. Now, in the aftermath of their encounter, Patterson rushed to develop that film. He was convinced he'd changed scientific history. But whilst basically no scientist took his film seriously, he did get pretty famous and appear on TV talk shows, and this caused a pretty big explosion in confidence in the Bigfoot legend. Now, Patterson died in 1972 of Hodgkin's lymphoma, but Gimlin still lives. He maintains that it's not a hoax, but has conceded that there is a possibility that Patterson could have tricked him, or that somebody else tricked both men. The film did seriously change American pop culture. It's considered one of the first widespread instances of pseudoscience in pop culture, you know, apart from stuff like phrenology and eugenics. But according to one poll, more Americans believe in Bigfoot than in the Big Bang Theory, which could be BS, but you'd also believe it, wouldn't you? And doesn't that say something interesting? One grainy film from the late 60s that shows almost nothing is concrete proof of a mythological being, whereas the hard work and thoroughly tested evidence of thousands of well-renowned scientists over decades is all a bunch of nothing. The Yeti also got its start in the 1800s. While supposedly the creature is part of the Burn mythology, I couldn't find any concrete evidence that this was consistent going back a long way, but that's because consistent recordings of Burn mythology are kind of hard to come by themselves. Burn is an interesting religion. Whilst many see it as the indigenous religion of Tibet, it's actually predated by Buddhism, being a relative newcomer amongst the Vedic religions of the Indian subcontinent and the Tibetan plateau. It has been characterised as an animistic or shamanic religion, but this is itself somewhat a myopic view. Bunpo, the practitioners of Bun, 
hold that the religion originated somewhere in Persia and migrated east to Tibet, although the historicity of that is quite doubtful. Some consider it a heterodox form of Buddhism, others see it as a totally separate religion. You might know it as one of the religions in which the left-facing swastika is a holy symbol before it was co-opted and changed by the Nazis. Some Bunpo have faced discrimination from Tibetan Buddhists, but this has mellowed out in recent decades with a greater harmony between the two. Basically, we don't have time to explore all the differences between the two, but suffice it to say that Bun represents an indigenous Tibetan belief system, separate but related to Buddhism with its own mythology. With that established, where does the Yeti come into this? It's unclear. Halfdan Seeger, an anthropologist, was apparently told that the Lepcha people of the Himalayas worshipped a glacial deity, which also took an aspect as a god of the hunt, which could be considered analogous to the Yeti. More relevant, perhaps, was the Mira god, a wild man whose blood was supposedly used in religious ceremonies by the Bunpa, depicted as a tall, ape-like creature. Our first historical account comes from 1832, James Princep published the Journal of the Asiatic Society of Bengal, an account of the explorer B.H. Hodgson's trekking through the Indian subcontinent. In the Himalayas, he and his guides saw an ape-like man covered in long dark hair which fled in fear of them. But Hodgson chalked this up to being an orangutan. A very level-headed explanation. Excepting for the fact that orangutan are native exclusively to Indonesia and Malaysia, far south of the Himalayas. In 1899, Lieutenant Colonel Lawrence Waddell, an explorer and surgeon for the British Indian Army, reported that footprints of some large bipedal creature had been reported in the Himalayas. He thought that they were made by a bear. When he tried to get a, quote, authentic account from the Tibetans, it was apparently a creature that existed through the grapevine, as it were. No one had ever seen one, but everybody knew someone who said they'd seen one. Reports of Yeti scaled up considerably through the 1920s to the 1950s as Westerners attempted to scale the peaks of the Himalayas and brought with them a lack of understanding of Himalayan mythology. We have the 1925 count, a supposed sighting, but with no photo to back it up. The interest peaked in 1951 when, on an attempt to scale Mount Everest, mountaineer Eric Shipton photographed some massive footprints he found at an altitude of 20,000 feet. As with the other footprints, we'll get to the veracity of the photos later. Hilary and Norgay, who summited Everest in 1953, saw footprints on their Everest ascent. Norgay stated in his first autobiography that his father had seen an ape-like creature, but clarified in his second autobiography that he was a sceptic of its existence. Another big boost came in 1954 with the Daily Mail-funded Snowman expedition, which photographed paintings of the Yeti and even claims to have found a supposed Yeti scalp. Examinations of the scalp taken from a monastery in Pangbosh, Nepal, found that the hairs, whilst not being identified specifically, were unlikely to have come from either a bear or an anthropoid ape. So, no bear, and no ape-man. In 1960, Edmund Hillary returns, this time with a specific goal to find the Yeti. Yup, famed mountaineer Edmund Hillary from earlier. Well, the goal was also to try and perform some high-altitude climbs without oxygen, but the Yeti hunt was a not insignificant part of that expedition. But lest you think that Edmund Hillary was a kook, hold on. He too collected supposed yeti scalps and other relics from various Himalayan monasteries, but upon bringing them back and testing them, concluded strongly that they were variously bear or goat hides and nothing more. Hillary was pretty satisfied he'd disproved the existence of the abominable snowman. Quote, The yeti is not a strange, superhuman creature as has been imagined. We have found rational explanations for most yeti phenomena. End quote. And that expedition is also considered a classic example of sterling success in high-altitude climbing without oxygen, so it was far from a waste of time yeti hunt. 
That was just some of it. Now, apparently in Bhutan at the time, in the 1960s, believing the Yeti was fairly widespread, as indicated by stamps made in Bhutan to honour the creature. That said, I can't vouch for whether this was symbolic honour of a symbolic creature or a literal depiction of an extant being. But now it's time for the meat and potatoes of the episode. Both the Yeti and the Sasquatch have seen a dramatic fall in both sightings and beliefs since the dawn of the 21st century. Well now, why is that? Well, to get to that, let's look at the possible explanations for these beings, assuming with the widest possible ideational net that they are real. First off is the classic for cryptids, misidentified animal. The chupacabra of Mexico is apparently just a dog with mange, so a bear with mange has been suggested for Bigfoot. But the film from before and other supposed photos depict a walking posture inconsistent with bears. The orangutan could be a good substitute for the yeti, if it was indigenous to the Himalayas, which it absolutely isn't. The langur monkey does live in the Himalayas, but not at the altitudes that the yeti was supposedly sighted at. Tibetan blue bears or Himalayan brown bears as well as Asian black bears have all been candidates for the yeti, and the idea that the scalps were bear hair might add to this. Then there's the hoaxes. Over the years, numerous people have attempted to pass off various pieces of footage and physical evidence as proof of Bigfoot or the Yeti. The Yeti scalps were the infamous ones. Each was shown to be a forgery of some kind. But lest we think that all things are that, remember when the platypus was discovered, it too was assumed to be a hoax. A duck-billed, beaver-tailed, otter-footed, venomous, egg-laying mammal? Who ever heard of such nonsense? So, maybe some things that are supposed to be hoax could be true? But the Shipton footprint was also derided by many as a hoax, claiming that Shipton made it himself and photographed it for the sake of it. Worth noting as well, in 2017, a never-before-seen photo from Shipton's collection was published, found in the archives of the Royal Geographical Society. In it, you can clearly see bear claw scratches to the footprint, so maybe it's not a hoax, maybe it's just a misidentification. With Bigfoot, the first recorded hoax apparently goes back to 1884, as studied by Bigfoot scholar John Green. No relation. Many instances of footprints have been shown to have been hoaxes, and film in the form of photos and actual real film is pretty easy to fake. For instance, Ray Wallace, the man who planted the 1958 footprints that started the trajectory that Pattinson and Gimlin would later join, when he died in 2002, it was revealed that all of his evidence had been hoaxes. The Patterson-Gimlin film has been variously lauded as not a hoax and derided as a hoax. Some claim it was a fake, Others claim that Patterson and Gimlin lacked either the facilities or the wherewithal to make a fake. But I think one quote from Philip Morris, owner of Morris's costumes, does the talking for the common argument that no one could have moved like Bigfoot does in the film. Quote, The Bigfoot researchers say that no human can walk that way in the film. Oh yes they can. When you're wearing long clown's feet, you can't place the ball of your foot down first, you have to put your foot down flat, otherwise you'll stumble. Another thing, when you put on the gorilla head, you can only turn your head maybe a quarter of the way. And to look behind you, you've got to turn your head and your shoulders and your hips, plus the shoulder pads of the suit get in the way of the jaw. That's why the Bigfoot turns and looks the way he does in the film. He has to twist his entire upper body. End quote. Now one should know, however, that Morris is one of the few who've claimed to have made the suit used in the fake footage, so he does have a vested interest in establishing that. Still, I think it's a pretty compelling logical take to dispel the idea that it couldn't have been faked. There's also the fact that one can draw an almost perfect parallel between digital photography and the rise of Photoshop, and the equal rise in skeptical eyes trained to detect video and image doctoring, and the increased rarity of Bigfoot or Yeti sightings. 
is the same as Nessie the Loch Ness Monster. As the ability to fake becomes more widespread, and thus the ability to spot fakes, the genuine article becomes rarer and rarer. Now isn't that curious? What I'm saying here is that I believe quite strongly that good evidence that these things are hoaxes is that the more ubiquitous filming becomes, and thus the more likely it is that we should catch Bigfoot on film, for instance, think of how much stuff is caught on camera phones these days, the less we see of these cryptids. I believe that's because people are better now at detecting what is and isn't a fake, because more kids have spent hours messing around with MS Paint or Photoshop than their predecessors, and can see when an image is cropped or airbrushed, or when the colours or layers don't align. People like to say it's very easy to fake images these days, and it absolutely is easy to fake things. But what most people also forget is that it's now also easier than ever to tell when something's been faked people are very good at spotting the difference. Well, certain people. Whether you believe them or not is up to you. Both Bigfoot and the Yeti have been candidates for possibly being Gigantopithecus, a now extinct early species of ape that was far larger than others. The problem here is that, even if a relic population of the extinct being did survive, due to its mass we're pretty certain that Gigantopithecus was quadrupedal, like a gorilla performing knuckle-walking. Bigfoot and the Yeti have been universally described as bipedal, that is to say, walking exclusively or predominantly on two legs with a more or less upright gait. Gigantopithecus could have been anywhere between 9 and 12 feet tall, weighing in around 600 pounds. That's pretty enormous. But they also died out around 300,000 years ago. To top off the problems with the idea that the creature is an ape, both live in areas that apes are not endemic to. The Pacific Northwest and the high-altitude Himalayas are far colder and more temperate climates than where apes are commonly found, the hot and wet areas of southern Asia and Africa, as well as the New World apes of South America. All are found in the tropics, not the Tibetan Plateau, which can go as low as minus 40 Celsius in the winter, nor the Himalayan mountain range, nor the cold and wet Pacific Northwest. Based off the logic of ape population distributions, if Bigfoot were an ape, you would expect to see him in Florida or Louisiana, not California, Oregon, or Washington. But now, of course, the Japanese macaque is famous for its resistance to cold. But even they take refuge in hot springs for warmth, and as cold as Japan can get in the winter, you don't find them on Japan's northernmost island, Hokkaido. They can hack temperatures as low as negative 20 degrees Celsius. That's incredibly hardy but it pales in comparison to a winter in the Himalayas. Now, the foothills of the Himalayas are warmer, but all of this leads to another big issue. In mountainous, cold climates, the vast majority of food is hunted. Anything bigger than a rat, one source stated, gets hunted by someone or something for food. So how could it be that these creatures, if they're so large, could either hide out the winter or hunt undetected? There's also the issue of populations. Basically put, Bigfoot sightings are so rare and so scarce, there's basically no way there exists a sustainable population of either Bigfoot or the Yeti that would be necessary for genetic diversity to prevent inbreeding, or even just maintaining a stable population of growth. The giant squid is seen very infrequently, sure, but they live in the deep ocean, which is by far and away the least explored part of the planet, and one where we can't constantly monitor them. Even in the more rural parts of the Americas or the Himalayas, where rural won't even scratch the surface to describe it, satellite imagery still exists. This also kind of cuts back in with the food issue for Bigfoot, sure. The Pacific Northwest isn't quite as cold or highly elevated as the Himalayas, but a creature as big as a Sasquatch would need a lot of food to sustain itself. How could a creature forage, farm, or hunt that much food without being spotted? 
Writing in an online article for the Scientific American, Daniel Naish, author of Hunting Monsters, Cryptozoology, and the Reality Behind the Myths, offers some damning critiques of the Bigfoot myth, specifically as it pertains to North America. First off, there's the tracks. Even if Bigfoot were as rare as they say, most tracking experts agree that the tracks don't match real animals. They're too clean, too perfect, and occur so rarely for an animal that would leave such an enormous footprint. They also frequently don't match what you would expect. For instance, a creature that big and heavy would have splayed toes and weathered soles of the feet, but that's never reflected in any of the tracks that get found. Then there's the DNA. Not only has no DNA ever been found that couldn't be linked to an existing animal, but even if it was, why hasn't it been found in the water? Or the soil? The environment in which these creatures supposedly live? And finally, and I think this one can apply to the Yeti as well rather interestingly, many have made meals out of the sounds of these creatures, but none ever line up with each other. If there did exist one or several ape-like species in either North America or the Himalayas, you'd see consistent vocalization or evolution, not sporadic and seemingly random sounds that are attributed to the beast. Simply put, different Bigfoots would still make similar sounds to each other, but they never seem to be when people either record them or describe the sounds, even if you accounted for different dialects of ape populations. What does this all lead to? Well, let's take a look in the next segment. So what does the evidence say? Well, it suggests one thing. Neither Bigfoot nor the Yeti exist. But we knew that. We said as much going in at the start. No, the real question is, if they're so clearly not real, then why do people believe in them so strongly? Well, in the compilation book Folk Tales of Sherpa and Yeti, by author Shiva Dekal, they describe the tales of the Yeti thusly. Quote, Perhaps folk tales of Yeti were used as warnings or likely for morality, so that the kids wouldn't wander far away and they would be always close and safe within the community. Some say that the Yeti is just a fear that has been built inside the heads of mountainous peoples to make them stronger and fearless in the harsh weather. End quote. According to this line of thinking, the Yeti was a mythological creature meant as an allegory for the dangers posed by mountains, an anthropomorphic personification of avalanches, blizzards, and the other perils of high-altitude life. Then along come the Westerners, and after a mistranslation via word of mouth from a 1921 British Everest expedition, the legend of the abominable snowman is born proper. And I would say Bigfoot's story is probably about the same. Westerners come across a mythological tradition that they don't really understand and blow it out of proportion. And as a result, a new mythology arises, almost syncretized in a way. You can't say that either Bigfoot or the Yeti are an accurate reflection of either Salish or Burn mythology, but you also can't say that they're not rooted in those traditions. They aren't totally Western inventions, but without the Westernized elements, they wouldn't be what they are today. So then why are they still so popular? Well, I think that an article for the Smithsonian Online by Ben Crayer says it best. First off, the hunt for these creatures represents a hearkening back to a time when science was less rigorous. You didn't need DNA evidence or laboratories or peer review or anything like that to discover a lost creature. You needed guts and determination. And so legions of Bigfoot or Yeti hunters go off to try and make names for themselves without needing to adhere to all the trappings of modern zoology. Since these creatures don't exist like real animals do, the rules don't apply. Furthermore, whilst technology has made it easier to spot fakes, in an era of fake news and, 
the phrase that I hate so much, alternative facts, it's easier than ever for people to reject our reality and substitute their own, to horribly misquote the great Adam Savage. You get the echo chamber effect going on. People double down on their beliefs even if they're not true. There's also the obsession with the great outdoors, and that's a reasoning that I can get behind myself. I love the outdoors. I have as much time as I spend indoors. I did my DOV willingly. I was in the cadets. I've been camping and hiking since I was a kid and will probably do so for the rest of my life. It's the call of nature, those wild, untamed places like forests of the northwest or the mountains of the Himalayas, the last great frontiers on the earth and refuges of the wild. People want reasons to delve deep into those hidden and hard-to-reach places, so they invent some. Then I think there's the conspiracy-esque desire to just be right, to prove the eggheads wrong, to stick it to the man, to show how right you are. And it's intoxicating to some, I think, that wish to use elbow grease and spit to prove that those boffins at the science lab are fools. It's a classic morality tale where the underdog overcomes the hubristic power figures. Perhaps I'm reading too much into it, but I think that people like Bigfoot and the Yeti because they represent the idea that there's something left to discover. Now, in an age where we've got a pretty damn clear story of the Earth from the Big Bang all the way to the several potential ends of the universe, people want something that's not been found. And people have been proven wrong before. Philip von Jolly supposedly told Max Planck that he shouldn't bother becoming a physicist, as there wasn't anything left to discover in the field of physics. Planck then went on to lay the foundations for quantum physics. So there have been instances of people showing the established scientists that there is something new to find. But it's a misunderstanding. Most scientists, at least those with a proper respect for academic rigour, are open to new discoveries. But a grainy film or faked footprint does not a discovery make. If you want to prove the existence of your cryptid, find actual evidence and get it peer-reviewed. Have something you can replicate, perform experiments properly, that's the way to do it. So if there's a lesson for today, it'd be don't let your desire to find something new outstrip your ability to prove its existence. There have been so many instances of people being blinded by their own science, as it were, so convinced they've got the next big thing that they don't realise it is not a thing at all, or not what they thought it was. Explore the world and everything in it to your heart's content and keep an open mind. But in the words of Tim Minchin, if you open your mind too much, your brain will fall out. Part of being a skeptic is questioning things, but another part of it is learning to accept evidence when it's presented and proven. It reminds me a little bit of moon landing truthers, people who, despite being shown categorically that the moon landings could not have been faked for far too many reasons for us to get into now, they continue to deny it on the basis that they're just being a good skeptic and questioning everything, just like Socrates. Cue the rolling in the grave of Socrates and philosophy majors everywhere. If you ask the question and get the answer, proved as QED, but deny the answer anyway, why did you ask the question? Did you actually care about the answer, or did you just want to make it look like you were asking questions to try and look smart? A true skeptic learns to accept when their position is untenable. Question everything, sure, but also learn when to accept things, otherwise you get stuck in an endless feedback loop of self-denial where nothing is true and everything is true at the same time and then you're back to the whole alternative facts thing again. I bet when we started talking about Bigfoot and the Yeti that you didn't think we'd take it to this place, huh? Just goes to show you the far-reaching power of folklore and mythology, how these historical mysteries can have consequences of their own. But we close the book, for now at least, on Bigfoot and the Yeti. This episode of Demystified was written, recorded, produced, and edited by me, Ashley Styles, with hosting by Wizard Studios and music from ProductionCrate.com. Go to ProductionCrate.com for all of your royalty-free music needs. 
Support us on Patreon or follow us on Twitter at demystified underscore pod. Please do, it really helps the show out. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you all next time. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.